I just want that to be the beginning of a detective show. Good morning. You're listening to HR Examiner's Executive Conversations. I'm your host, John Sumser, and we're going to be talking with Dr. Michael Canisto today. Before that, I just want to let you know that we're sponsored by Benefit Ed, and we're delighted to have their sponsorship. We'll tell you more about them in the middle of the show. Dr. Michael Canisto, how are you this morning? I'm well. You know, you remind me there was an old story about... um... I think it was Alexander Graham Bell or something. Someone He overheard his maid uh, answer the phone. No, that can't be right. He invented the phone. Someone someone of notoriety overheard the maid say, yes, he's a doctor, but he's not the kind of doctor that can help anybody. That's what I think when you said that. Well, but, but, but a Ph.D. in chemistry from Texas A&M University and a postdoctoral fellowship in the material science and engineering department at University of Michigan, there are, not, there, there are not a lot of dudes walking around the um, uh, recruiting world with those sorts of credentials. That is true. You are a STEM. I am. That's true. Back when before it was uh, before it was STEM. <laughs> before it was it was seeds. Before it was STEM. That's right. <laughs> So, so why don't you introduce yourself and, and tell us what you're doing here, anyhow? Sure. Well, uh, hello from a rainy, uh, a rainy New York City. It's gray and um, steely gray and uh, rainy and cold here, but um, uh, it's warm here on the HR Examiner. So, my name is Michael Canisto, and um, I head up a little organization called Mindemic Lab, which is a think tank. I started it about a year and a half ago. And um, I bring groups of interesting people together, and we spend a couple of days mapping out uh, forces that are at work in the workplace and in the world and um, come up with some speculative scenarios about what the world of work might look like 20 years from today. So when I hear think tank, I think about driving my think wagon up to the think station and getting a tank full. Do you do you fill tanks of um, I hope so. Most people seem to feel like <laughs> they're they're a little their tank is a little bit more full when they leave a, a mindemic lab session. But um, I guess it's the easiest way to describe what I do. Um, you know, again, it's there's this whole scenario planning, which is this whole process and procedure, popu- you know, created in the '60s, popularized in the '70s, and promptly forgotten. So if I say I run a scenario planning. Um, uh, group, then some people don't know what that is. And I usually start off and say, hey, it's a think tank. And we get together and we think and we leave with an output. We leave with a couple of um, scenarios uh, fleshed out in uh, speculative fiction to help organizations become more agile uh, and to think differently about what the world of work and the world of business might look like. Okay. Can you take me the next layer down below the buzzwords? Yes. So what happens is we create, um, we get up four or five or six people um, selected because they're interesting, they have different perspectives, they're creative, um, try to create groups that are uh, dissimilar um, in background and experience, bring them together and work th- walk them through this, um, this process called scenario planning, which speaking roughly is getting everyone together and thinking, brainstorming, talking about what are the forces that are at work in the world right now? Is it the economy, the environment, uh, population, demographics, um, technology? 
and plotting them all out and talking about them at length. Um, what I think, or the reason I started this is in my own um, career and what I hear, see from other people, is oftentimes when we're mapping out our business strategy or mapping out a product that we want to launch, we're sort of focused on one element. Well, what's the economy going to do? What's the number of people on the internet going to do? What's the cost of data storage going to do? And I find that um, what scenario planning allows us to do as a group is to pick a couple of these factors and combine them, which always produces some really interesting possibilities. So if this happened and this happened, and you ran the clock forward 20 years, what might that do to the way we go to work or where we go to work or how we work or what work is? And so uh, we spend a day um, mapping out those different interactions. We go and have a nice dinner. We come back the next day and we begin to create fiction. We begin to create literally written scenarios of describing a day in the life or what will the world look like or what will it feel like to come to work. So people kind of ask you this all the time. Um, this is this is like, in my mind, this is the most annoying question to ask anybody who's doing something interesting, and that is, what's the ROI? I'm glad you asked that. The, R the ROI is difficult to quantify. So the number one thing that I tell people when I'm having this conversation um, is it is absolutely 100% not designed to predict what is going to happen. It has zero value in predicting the future or predicting what's going to happen. Um, we're concerned not with probability, but plausibility. And so the scenarios that we create are exercises in and of themselves to just give a different perspective in thinking about the future. So you could say, well, what's the point of spending two days if you're not going to be able to come up with a scenario that perfectly describes what's going to happen 20 years from now. But the value is it changes your framework. It changes your mindset. It makes you think differently. Uh, people come back and, and do say that. They say they, they find themselves thinking more long-term at work, or they'll say, I don't know, or what would happen if this occurred. And it just is a way of thinking differently and kind of getting out of that groove that we all find ourselves in and try to think of other ways that factors could combine to change the world. So it sounds like it sounds like you've seen a lot of people who um, show up and they are in their work mode, right? They've got their phones out, they're checking their to-do list, they're Facebooking every thirty seconds, and you somehow have figured out a magic formula for causing them to set that down and go from moment-to-moment consciousness to a longer-range view of things. How does that work? Well, the great news is the people who came before me have kind of created a, um, um, a way of going about the day and designing the day so that you're sort of easing people into it. Absolutely. When you start off, everyone's checking their phones. Everyone's networking. Um, the first couple hours as you're just sort of throwing ideas out and saying, gee, what will uh, happen when the baby boom, what will happen when the millennials' parents start to pass away? Or what's going to happen if this surveillance capitalism continues to grow and we turn over more and more of our day-to-day -day responsibilities to the company we work for as opposed to having them done by the government? And right away, I find that people will begin to think about, well, how would I, how would I use that in my day-to-day -day work? Or how can we sell that? Or how can we commoditize it? Or how can we make it into a product? But then what you usually happens around lunch time on the first day is that first combination is identified. Well, this is an interesting thing, and here's this other interesting trait that's happening. But if we combine them, what would that look like? And some 
brave soul will say, well, gosh, that could that could really be interesting. What if um, what if um, millennials parents start to pass away and they realize they don't know how to balance a checkbook or pay taxes or do anything and they suddenly walk away from their devices and walk away from technology and begin to um, sort of go back into a, um, um, a human interaction mode as opposed to a te- an interaction through technology. And it's usually something that's so dissimilar to anything that people have thought about in their day-to-day work. Everyone kind of stops and pauses in mid-chew, uh, sets their device down, and then the conversation really heats up and gets exciting. That's cool. So so um, I've been to a couple of these things. Do you do them inside of companies as well as outside of companies? Um, I de- so it's nice to get – so let me answer it this way. I like to, uh, to be in a space where you can't just go down the hall, either um, literally or figuratively, and go back and check on your work. So we, we find that um, the sessions that are held in – um, a rentable office space, or I've done it in someone's kitchen, around a kitchen table with people who are co-located. Um, it's just easier. If you're at work, um, some of the workspaces that seem to be more successful, as I talk to others, are the ones that are designed to um, facilitate um, events like this. So if it's a space that's sort of away, set away from everyone's office, it's designed to be an event space, um, that's, those are the best places to do it. Um, we did one, as you know, John, at the um, at the uh, at the Long Now at the Interval. Well, the Long Now is a foundation founded by Stuart Brandt and Brian Eno and a few others, designed to foster long-term thinking, and it's filled with you know the books that are required to rebuild civilization and the 10,000-year clock model, and it's all sorts of interesting people coming and going in the in the Bay Area, and we uh, hid out in a little room off the Interval Cafe, and it was really the best space I've, I've ever worked in. It was just inspirational and inspired all sorts of fun ideas that day. So, so let's talk about some of the things that you've covered in, in, in these various lab experiments. Sure. Um, one of the, um, the first one that we, so we've, we, we dabbled with it. And again, it's about a, been about a year and a half. The first uh, report that we published dealt with this notion of what we ended up calling tribal dimensions. So we, we created a term, um, a quick Google search <laughs> indicated that we, we indeed, come, indeed come up with it. And so we've been using it. This notion of tribal dimensions, that, that idea being in today's uh, world, uh, particularly with your audience, there's this whole ability to not only connect with people who are similar to you, but even to exclude people who are dissimilar to you or to even have, for example, your news feeds or products that you're pitched are perfectly aligned to just you and you and your tribe. Um, you know, We all belong to tribes. We all belong to many tribes. But never before have we been able to sort of tune our technology or our interactions to only interact with people who are like ourselves. So I don't, I mean, that is clearly happening today. If you listen to the news or are aware of what's been going on over the last few years, that's a, that's a deliberate attempt to make life easier for people by only sending them things that are interesting or relevant to them. So we explored the possibility in this particular event. Well, what if like, let's take that to the ultimate level. Like what would that look like? 
Uh, would you only work with people who are exactly like you? Would you only interact? Would you only um, want to um, buy things from people who are exactly like you? Um, and what would a world look like where we only spend 100% of our interactions with people who belong to our tribe? And the other consideration is people sort of rejecting that and uh, abandoning that notion and seeking out diversity in their work, in their interactions, in their personal life, in their purchasing life. And what might that look like extrapolated out 20 years? So that was the first report we published and um, was really pleased with it. It was really fun and it was completely unlike anything I expected to come out of the uh, event. That's interesting. So so part of what you're saying is that the way you manage Mindemic Labs is um, – uh, with direction but not expectations. So you are surprised by what happens in your own enterprise. I can say this. Um, this is sort of, I say this to myself all the time at the beginning uh, of every event or at the end of every event or as I'm writing up reports is I assumed, so the first event that I hosted was lots of people that I knew that I've known for 10 years or more and we've all worked in the same industry together. And I thought, let's get a group of people together who all know one another and who work in the same industry and who've known each other for ages. Like, what are we really going to come up with? And again, a day and a half later, we came up with a list of nine or ten things that could be totally fleshed out in interesting ways um, that were completely unlike anything any of us had really ever sat down and thought about deliberately or explored. So it's, it's really remarkable. That's so. So you you found a way to create a a sort of a a creativity mine where you bring people who shouldn't have you know you know original ideas because they're experts and experts don't really have original ideas anymore, um, and somehow by some pixie dust that you sprinkle on them, interesting things happen. That's that's pretty cool. What do you think it is that? cool, and it's it continues to be cool. And I think again, it's this whole notion that if you have five or six people who are all really, really smart, <laughs> I mean, that, that's kind of that's probably one of the most enjoyable parts is the networking and the interaction. So you're meeting really, really smart people who are in a profession. Uh, deep functional experts in a profession that you don't encounter normally, or maybe you've never heard of. But it's rather than, I think the value or sort of the uplift comes by taking a really well thought out, important, significant trend in your world and combining it with a significant, important trend in someone else's world. There's this multiplying effect that you come up with uh, a third notion or item um, or, or idea that's completely different than the first two. It's very uh, philosophical in a sense. That's, that's interesting. So, so I think what you just said is that, that you bring people together who are smart, deep experts, but you don't bring them together for their expertise. You bring them together for the, the sort of underlying thing that made the expertise possible. And that's, that's not smart. That's some kind of diligent, maybe, maybe you have to have your sort of uh, Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours in. And by having 10,000 hours um, in any discipline, um, you come equipped to do things in other ways. Is that, am, am I getting close? I think so. And as I think back, as I think, reflect on the interactions, I, I think what happens is not only are people really, really smart, they're also, um, 
and to continue the Malcolm Gladwell um, theme, they're, they're connectors. So they can see, well, how would this fit with that? How would the political landscape today connect with uh, surveillance capitalism? How would, uh, you know, two things that are completely dissimilar, there's a way to find a connection, a thread connecting the two of them. And then a bunch of other people pile on and blow it out. And in real time, as fast as I'm writing on the whiteboard or the flip chart, people are saying, and then this could happen, and then this could happen, and then this could happen. And it's such a fabulous learning experience. And it's really fun to watch people step out of, you know, what most of us do is talk about the thing that we're allegedly an expert in all day long, again and again and again, and to step out and sort of jam and interact with people who are also really good at something and then coming up with something that's never been, um, really never seen the light of day before until the two or three or four or five of, the, of those people got together and sort of, sort of uh, um, d- d- directed all their energy at it at the same time. So you're talking about birthing stuff, and, and um, it's always the case when you birth something new. I guess you always birth something new, but but when you do that, that besides the joy and the delight and the fun and the insight, there's mess. Um, <laughs> what are the hard parts of this? The hard parts are um, you. If you, um, I'm sure a lot of the listeners. <laughs> have we all facilitate so you all get people in a room and you facilitate and you try to accomplish a goal at the end of the day training someone in a new product or teaching someone why they should buy your product or whatever it is and facilitation when it's done really really well is about leaving spaces and leaving uncomfortable silences and leaving unresolved issues or allowing you know slights and hurt feelings to just exist and be there and wait patiently for them to work their way through. So that's probably the biggest learning that I've had is to just not feel like I have to go in there and make the next connection or push the group to the next step, but allow the group to um, work through whatever's floating there, even if it's just silence where everyone feels like, you know, we've kind of taken this as far as they can and then wait for that next quantum leap. Um, so that is, that's messy. That's awkward. Um, sometimes, um, again, these are like really clever people who get a lot of stuff done and a lot of, um, sidetracking occurs where, uh, people start to talk about, well, how could you sell this? How could you package this? How, what, what kind of a customer would buy something that came out of this discussion that we're having? And so pulling everyone back, pulling everyone, moving them forward through the process. It's a two day process. Um, making progress, staying to the timeline um, so that you get to what everyone wants at the end, which is uh, two fully fleshed out scenarios that are incredibly interesting. Um, that's messy, but it's the messiness that um, people acknowledge has to occur. No one's ever said, why did you, why, why, why didn't you intervene? They sort of said, you know, I'm glad you didn't intervene. We needed to work that out as a group. Huh. Okay. Um, and so, so it must be some kind of a, ridiculous challenge to get people to see the economic value of this. Um, how, how are you thinking about marketing and the message to the market about, about the value here? Yeah. I mean, that's always been the challenge with scenario planning as far back as it goes. And um, as I'm sure most of the listeners may have heard, you know, Royal Dutch Shell was sort of the um, 
standard bearer for the most progressive, the most effectively utilized uh, company um, user of scenario planning, particularly in the heyday in the 1970s. And even them, um, even you know this really brilliant guy who led scenario planning at Pierre, uh, at, at Royal Dutch Shell, as it was called at the time, Pierre Vac, um, struggled with demonstrating the value. Um, as he pointed out, um, which is something I always keep in mind, you know, the higher you go up, higher up you go in an organization, the reason that those people are in those roles is because they always know the answer. I mean, that's what an executive does. That's what a leader is there to do, to keep the business moving, because they always know the answer. And so what um, getting people to invest two days of time to go off and think about things that probably aren't going to happen because it will uh, create agility in your mindset and teach you to think differently about your business is a tough, it's, 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 it's tough to sell today as it was in the early 1970s. So for me, it's more about the pleasure that people get. And I'm hoping my, my, my strategy, uh, if there, to call it that, is to have people go back and go, you know, this actually did impact a decision that I made. Or I thought differently, you know, when we said, should we, and should we buy the five-year license for this product? I asked questions that I'd never asked before, and it made us um, more effective in, you know, negotiating the product. And so it's really just um, bringing people together, getting them interested in it, sending them back to their day-to-day -day lives, and um, having that stick and grow slowly. So, so do you think this is the opposite of benchmarking? Um, the opposite of benchmarking. I think it's dissimilar to benchmarking, obviously. So let's see. Benchmarking is seeing what everyone else is doing and seeing how you compare to it. Um, I think you could benchmark scenarios. It's just different. So you're, benchmarking is – let me answer it this way. I think benchmarking is taking a look – in the current day, today, looking left, looking right, and seeing what others are doing and how you are positioned in line. Um, scenario planning is saying, what will, where will we all be 20 years from now? Will we all still be here together doing the same thing? And what possible futures have we planned for as opposed to what possible futures will others have planned for? And how can we use the learning and um, share it amongst ourselves to all be around here and be successful in the future? So, so I'd say benchmarking is copying and um, uh, planning is composing. Oh, I like that. Right, because this is not about figuring out what everybody else is doing. This is, this is the, the scenario planning is a fundamental component of creating your own point of view and your own vision for things, not... Um, noticing what everybody else is doing and making sure that you keep up with the Joneses. I think bench. So I think one of the challenges that companies have traditionally had is so being so focused on keeping up with the Joneses. Well, they acquired a company that has this technology. We better do the same. They're entering this marketplace. We better do the same. Um, our competitors offered this feature. We need to have something similar. And both of both of those companies may be headed down a path that's going to be completely unsustainable. Um, you know, the one thing that people say uh, who are in a position to know is the one thing that technology's done is really increase the pace of uh, of of business. Some people say as high as tenfold. So you could be neck and neck and racing with a competitor to try to have product offerings and pricing models that are exactly on uh, at parity. 
and you're both heading down a direction that's not going to be there from um, the next year or the next two years. So I think scenario planning gives you options. It creates agility, and when the unexpected happens unexpectedly, uh, you've got more tools in your uh, bag of tools to adjust and um, um, and get back on a track that's uh, that's going to work for your company. So when's the next one? Tell, tell me about what's what's coming up with Bindemic Labs. We are planning the next event for uh, spring of uh, 2019, uh, probably a February time frame, looking for a city. Um, some organizations um, are interested in hosting and sending some of their folks to participate. Um, uh, so it's, a, oh, it's like what I probably didn't say before is it's a constantly changing group. So we switch people out. We've got people who've come to um, a couple of these events. We've got people who've come to one. It's completely portable because it's me. And so we're looking for the next city. Uh, we're looking at um, either Atlanta or Philadelphia or Chicago. And it's really just about getting the right people in the room to make the event worthwhile. So you'll see an announcement um, soon once we figure out where we're going to do it. And it'll be again, probably February timeframe. Well, um, so, so what do you hope, to, where do you hope to be by the end of, uh, 2019 with your project? I would like to have, um, a few more of these scenario reports under my belt. Um, what's been interesting is we've, um, as I look, for example, over the last three, um, <laughs> I, what's interesting to me who spends uh, admittedly more time than anyone else thinking about them and reading them and reviewing them is there's, I think a synergistic um, approach that comes from looking at the different reports, even though they ended up exploring completely different topics, they all kind of circle back about people and their technology and the places they work and what they like to do and how they spend their free time. So I think having three or four more reports to look at is going to develop additional level of insights that I hope to um, um, be able to share and, again, just provide interesting ways for people to look at their personal lives and their professional lives and how life might, how life will certainly be different uh, 20 years from now. So how do you get, how do I get a copy of the reports? Sure. There's a couple of them up on our website right now. Uh, the website is uh, www.mindemiclab.com. That's just the way it sounds. M-I-N-D-E-M-I-C-L-A-B.com. Um, there's a couple of them. Uh, if you go to the top of the page and at the far right, uh, there's a tab called Past Scenarios, and you can download a copy of our original report, Tribal Dimensions, How Will They Shape the World of Talent and Recruiting in 2038? And one that's uh, brand new um, uh, 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 for you to enjoy, and it's called Whose Flag Are You Going to Salute? The Rise of the Corporation as Nation State. And there'll be another one up in the next few weeks as well. That's great. Well, let me, let me take a moment and, and catch this uh, for Benefit Ed, and then we will come back and tell people how to get a hold of you again. Benefit Ed helps your workforce get the most out of your employer match program. Employee choice, offered exclusively by Benefit Ed, enables employees to decide if they want their employer match contributions to be allocated to student loan repayment, retirement, or both. Increase plan participation and offer an innovative benefit without a drastic increase to overall benefit spend. Compete for the best and build your dream team. Learn more at youbenefited.com slash HRX. That's youbenefited.com slash HRX. 
All right, Michael, why don't you reintroduce yourself and tell people how to get a hold of you? Sure. I am Michael Canisto. I run a think tank called Mindemic Lab, where we bring very interesting people together and do scenario planning and create uh, uh, speculative fiction and insights around possible futures uh, for the world of work and the world of business 20 years from today. Um, our scenario reports can be found at uh, our website, www.mindemiclab.com, and you can always reach out to me directly at michael at mindemiclab.com. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to do this, Michael. It was a great conversation. I certainly had a good time. hope you did, too. I sure did. Thanks for, um, um, thanks for uh, having me on. Great. You've been listening to HR Examiner's Executive Conversations, sponsored by youbenefited.com slash HRX. Um, and we've been speaking with Dr. Michael Canisto, the founder, CEO, chief cook and bottle washer at Mindemic Labs. Thanks for listening today, and thanks again, Michael, for doing this. We will see you back here next week. Bye-bye now.